Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got me, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me this week is the long-absent but much-loved Chloe Collar. Hey, everybody! I'm back in Cumbria this weekend, and so that has given me prime opportunity to do some more podcast recording. Yes, I've been accosted. (laughs) Pretty much. I've been on the phone being like, have you been preparing? Have you been doing your research? (laughs) I'm now a really stressful friend to be around, because you have to have essentially prepared an essay in order to see me. (laughs) And we are sitting at the end of the bed and it feels I feel a little bit like a teenager we're sort of set up in a bedroom and hanging out chatting away yeah I feel like we should be watching Mean Girls or something (laughs) as thrilled as I am to have Chloe here today it is a little sad that I'm not with Phoebe because this week's episode is on Catholicism and detective stories so you do have Sherlock but we are without Watson. Watson. It's very sad. But unfortunately for Phoebe, she is not quite the connoisseur of murder mysteries as is Chloe. Yes, I love a good murder. (laughs) Yeah, we do, don't we? We we absolutely (laughs) love it. And so Chloe has been wrangled in because we're going to talk about a whole range of authors and for the sake of ease, I thought it would be easier to get Chloe on board because then I wouldn't have to do all of the reading. (laughs) We could split it evenly between us. So yeah, we're going to talk about detective fiction and we're going to just kind of analyse it a bit and see if there's anything that could be kind of intrinsically Catholic or even just look at why so many overtly Christian and overtly Catholic people were drawn to detective fiction, especially in the kind of the turn of the century, Edwardian era, and then post-World War One, there was what was called the golden age of detective yeah. fiction. And so we're kind of going to be looking at the very beginnings of that and moving on through to that golden era and looking at the types of people that were writing it and the types of stories that they were telling and how those all fit into a Catholic perception. I think I was reading in one article, which was, uh, maybe it was the Catholic Herald, it was definitely like a Catholic website, Mm -hmm. where they were saying, you know, is there any question about whether good, upstanding Catholics should be reading about death and murder and intrigue and... Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. But I think we are going to discuss how, in some ways, there is a way that Catholicism and a Catholic understanding of the world can inform detective fiction. Yes. So we're going to start with the big one, with Sherlock himself. <laughs> and Where else could we start? I fortunately have a huge affinity for Sherlock because you need to when you spend your whole life being told, well, well done, Sherlock, and <laughs> some more expletive ones. <laughs> but my whole family loves everything to do with Sherlock and the Sherlock Holmes stories. So this was not a difficult thing for me to dive into. <laughs> and so I think it'll be really interesting to start. So Detective fiction as a genre didn't begin with Sherlock Holmes, but it didn't actually begin that much earlier. There was Mm -hmm. a few other people writing. There was a couple of French authors and you have Poe, you have Wilkie Collins Collins. with The Moonstone, which is actually a great book. We studied it at university and I really enjoyed it. You can actually attribute Bleak House by Charles Dickens to being a detective fiction story. Mm -hmm. But certainly... It's interesting that Sherlock Holmes was the first big star and that he has continued to be kind of the brightest star in the genre. Um, So he really kind of left his mark. And we're actually going to see later how other people both tried to emulate and step away from the model that he sets up. But I think he's an interesting one to talk about to begin with, simply because he doesn't come off as an overtly religious character. Mm -hmm. He doesn't really talk about faith or religion a lot. I still think that he is something kind of important to say. And I suppose the first important thing to say is that Arthur Conan Doyle, the author, was raised Catholic. I'd actually forgotten that. (laughs) Yeah, he was raised in a Catholic family. He did drop away from his faith as a young adult and and very decisively. I believe he kept a Christian perspective, but he, he was very interested in dabbling in different areas. He kind of went into Freemasonry and then he came out of it. And the thing that really stuck with him was spiritualism, which had a huge movement, especially around World War One, with mediums and psychics and contacting the dead. Yeah. And it really blew up at that time. And Arthur Conan Doyle bought it hook, line and sinker. <laughs> Although I do think he was part of Christian spiritualism group. Okay. 
Um, so it still had the yeah, I think the yeah, I think he still had that kind of lens, and mm-hmm. religion was something that was really important to him. It wasn't that he didn't care; it was actually that when he lost his faith, he was very anxious to replace it with something else. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it was something really important to him. But he did begin with this Catholic perspective and also, tellingly, with a Catholic education. Mm -hmm. He received a Jesuit education and there was one of his teachers, Father Francis Cassidy, who was a Jesuit, encouraged him both to develop his love of reading, which he got from his mother, and to begin writing. So that kind of genesis was actually from his Jesuit education. And when I was reading about this, I thought, I wonder, would it be interesting to go look at Jesuit values and see whether there was anything that kind of correlated to his outlook? And I think there actually is. Obviously, Holmes doesn't really profess any faith. And given that he has such a focus on rationalism and scientism, it seems unlikely that he was meant to have been portrayed as anyone with a particularly strong faith. There are some elements. He has one particular moment where he stops and talks about a rose and talks about an intelligent creator. And okay. and there's actually another moment where he says he helped the Pope with a particular problem. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> but equally, I did read part of an article. Unfortunately, it was... <clears throat> I, I don't know how to get hold of it. There was a journal called, the, I think it was the Baker Street Journal. It looked okay. fascinating. But it, there was a, an article in there which was arguing essentially that Holmes, mirroring his creator, might have received a Jesuit education. Right. It was comparing those elements. And so just to kind of go into that a little bit, which I think obviously that's all just speculation, but I think it's quite fun. Mm-hmm. So you, within the Jesuit mentality, you have this emphasis on, is it pronounced magis, magis, M-A-G-I-S? You tell uh, me. <laughs> I don't know. It probably uh, depends which Latin course you did when you were at school. <laughs> yes, but it's this idea of striving for excellence and it, it's the word for more. And mm-hmm. so it's about being the best. And I think that's a very Sherlock Holmes thing to identify yourself striving for more than just everyone else mm-hmm. around you. And then also just an element on Ignatian spirituality, which really incorporates not just your emotions, but also your imagination and your intellect and using that for discernment. So I think there's almost like a level of clarity around that, that like knowing yourself and and being able to analyse yourself, which I think has a very Sherlock Holmes vibe to it. But when I was thinking about this, I was actually thinking not just about discernment. I was thinking that there is also another element, which in Jesuit thinking, there's a real awareness of evil, both both in society and Mm -hmm. in yourself. And obviously within that mentality from a Jesuit point of view, then the emphasis is placed on and the even greater love of God that overcomes that. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of pointing to that we shouldn't disguise the fact that evil exists in the world, but we should also be open to the fact that God's love is greater than that. It's going to link into what I've got to say about Poirot. Excellent. (laughs) Excellent. And then the final thing I'll just say about Sherlock, I just think it's nice to set him up because he is such a pivotal character. A lot of the Sherlock stuff, to me, sounds very Aquinas. Ooh, (laughs) here we go. Even like the idea of deductive reasoning and that idea of extrapolating out from one thing to another there's that really famous quote where Holmes says, I think it's actually in the first one, it's in a study in Scarlet, and he says, mm-hmm. uh, from a drop of water, a logician could infer the possibility of an Atlantic or a Niagara without having seen or heard of one or the other. Which, to me, actually kind of echoes some of the elements of the argument for contingency that Aquinas has for God. Mm-hmm. That on some level, when you look at one thing, you can extrapolate backwards and see something much bigger and much greater and, and something that's out of your scope of comprehension when you look at a single drop of water. Well, good link. I Thank like you. it. I yeah. like it. And so the thing that I would say about Sherlock is not specifically that he himself brings a Catholic perspective to detective fiction and solving mysteries and things like that. But that the Catholic viewpoint of the world, and this has elements in it in other Christian denominations, but Catholics in particular really profess an idea that God is reasonable Mm -hmm. and he works through reason and logic. And because of that, the world is both knowable and understandable. And so the idea that Sherlock can deduce all of these things is only possible because the world itself makes sense. If you do one thing, this thing happens. If you walk on this kind of mud, this kind of trace is left. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing that you have to set up in order to be able to have a mystery that can be solved 
is a rational, reasonable view of the world that can be understood and that can be broken down and that can be investigated. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, we're going to be moving pretty much straight from this into Chesterton, which is a whole (laughs) whole different kettle of fish, because he really focuses on emotions and spirituality. But in the very first Father Brown story, he catches someone out who's masquerading as a priest. And how he catches him out is because the priest is arguing against reason. And Father Brown says, you argued against reason. That's just bad theology. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. And then he says, alone on earth, the church affirms that God himself is bound by reason. And that's such a profound thing to say. And I think it's something that we're quite afraid of now because even when they made that story into a movie, mm. they ch- they changed it to Father Brown caught the guy out because he was eating a ham sandwich on a Friday. Oh, wow. That's, that's the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it's totally that's the same. That's as deep and meaningful. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like they were worried that the audience wouldn't necessarily believe that that is actually the church's stance. They may be right. I mean, it, it's quite understandably surprises people. Yeah. The the focus on logic and rationality and reasoning within the Catholic faith, when, if you don't know a lot about it, it's not the sort of overriding perception people have these days. So yeah, they think... I, I can understand how they, it gets, they changed it. it, it yeah, because <laughs> people... Sandwich is a bit sad. <laughs> I know. It's very sad. But it, they kind of think of it as more to do with superstition and you know there's a lot of atheists that accuse you of believing in a big magical friend in the sky or yeah yeah, (laughs) which is definitely what we believe but I think that's a really important premise that unless the world is noble and unless the world is reasonable you can't have an investigation with clues and logic and reason and so I think in a way that I just want to posit that the Catholic faith gave this to the world, that embrace of reason as a way of understanding the world kind of Mm -hmm. stems from this Catholic point of view, which is really fun because then obviously everything to do with the genre is to do with that understanding of the world. I like the the sort of Thomistic links. It's very good. Thank you very much. Very good. And so we're kind of doing this chronologically. So from Arthur Conan Doyle, we're going to move straight into G.K. Chesterton, <laughs> um, which, I mean, we're all very happy about. We are. It's great. And G.K. Chesterton's a really interesting figure generally. I mean, just in everything, he was very interesting. <laughs> but he... You could never say he was dull. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. And he brought a particular quality and understanding to the detective story. So first of all, he was a voracious reader of detective fiction. He used to just cram them into his pockets while going for a train and they're just like pages spilling out everywhere. He just adored the genre and he was the first serious literary critic to write about them. Most people dismissed it as just popular fiction for the masses. And I would really encourage you, there's so many quotes that I pulled out that were so perceptive and incisive, but they didn't necessarily relate to the particular perspective we're putting on the topic. But if you go to the G.K. Chesterton website, they have endless talks and speeches and essays that he wrote about the topic of detective fiction and what makes a good detective story, what's an ideal detective story, what are the errors that people make when they write them. And he gives such an insightful breakdown of how they should work and how they kind of fall flat when you move away from these things. And so I'd really encourage anyone who enjoys the genre to go and look those up. But we'll just focus on a particular aspect, which is the faith aspect. And he was writing in a time which was just after Arthur Conan Doyle. And everyone was writing detective stories and they were all trying to emulate Conan Doyle and they were all failing miserably. (laughs) And he, he was a really big fan of Sherlock Holmes, But he does also feel like there's something lacking in the mechanicalism. And I don't think he would mind it so much just from Sherlock Holmes if everyone then didn't try to copy it. Mm -hmm. But it was just one style of story that he just felt was getting repeated over and over again. The the beauty of Sherlock Holmes is that that's what he's like. Like, mm -hmm. other people aren't 
aren't like Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, he's very distinctive. Mm -hmm. And so I've got a quote from an article here, which was saying he was unhappy with Conan Doyle's imitators. He thundered against unlikely endings that introduced at the last minute a twin brother from America or the secret society of Tibetan assassins or the... (laughs) or the freshly invented poison that leaves no trace, or the proof that a seemingly insignificant character was actually the arch-villain. I just love that, that there's all of these people that, like, as they get further and further away from Holmes, they start becoming more convoluted and more laboured <laughs> and more just far from the... Because a lot of the Sherlock Holmes stories are quite homely, like, they're quite small. They're not big and expansive Mm -hmm. they're quite contained but he really wanted to incorporate something that he felt was missing in the Sherlock Holmes stories which is well kind of two things first of all an understanding of human emotions and human psychology and an understanding of the heart but also the fact that he, he said something along the lines of saying that Holmes would have guessed many of the things that he knew about the characters long before he deduced them. That there is something about the human nature which is able to make sometimes wrong but often well-judged guesses at a particular atmosphere in a place or a particular feeling they get from a person. And I know a lot of people can just write that off as say like, oh well then it's intuition and that's a cop-out. But I think he really worked to try and portray how, especially if you're a person of deep prayer, that you are both more used to observing the world and observing people and their feelings and their emotions, but also more sensitive to what he called spiritual atmospheres. Oh, and so yeah, and so he really worked to incorporate both the logic. It's not that his stories aren't about logic or reason; they don't make sense, but that the two go together. That there's an understanding of things that are ethereal and immaterial, and as well as the logic. And we're going to get to Father Brown in a second, but actually, the first kind of detective stories that he wrote, I just want to give a shout out to these stories because they're actually my favorite of all of the G.K. Chesterton fiction that I've read so far, which is The Club of Queer Trades. The Club of Queer Trades is an absolute wonder and a joy. <laughs> it's such a joy. It's one of the funniest things I've ever read. It's just hilarious. The premise is there are a series of stories and they all involve someone who's in the club of queer trades and to be in the club of queer trades you have to have started up a profession that nobody else in the world has thought of. But the actual premise for the stories is that there's two brothers I believe and one of them is a Holmes fanatic and he wants to deduce everything from reason and he keeps being landed in these situations that seem impossible and outlandish and and look like there's a crime happening and each time his brother demonstrates to him that there isn't actually a crime happening so he sort of disproves that there's even a crime to be investigated and they're really funny and they're just that really clever thing that Chesterton does with paradox and the unexpected and we're going to come back to those a little bit because Chesterton saw paradox as such a deeply catholic thing and he goes into how detective fiction can bring that about. But to move on to his much more famous character, which is Father Brown. And he wrote a whole series of books based on the Father Brown character. And I love how much Father Brown is is so the opposite of Sherlock. Even in his look, Sherlock is that tall and aquiline and sharp nose and angular. Father Brown is this soft, squidgy, unnoticeable person. I think it's really fascinating to look at how Father Brown came about, because he was also on at, like at the very beginning of Chesterton's conversion to Catholicism and it was because he was talking to a priest so mm-hmm. he was talking to a priest friend of his called Father O'Connor and he was talking about how he was writing an article I believe which was about the nefarious deeds of criminals in London and the priest sort of gave him some really un- unexpected perspective so I've got an article here which I'm reading it from and it says The priest disagreed with some of Chesterton's kindly views on begging and beggars and felt obliged to inform his friend about some of the less savoury practices of the professional beggars. Chesterton was profoundly shocked. 
not then a Roman Catholic himself, Chesterton had assumed that priests would be less informed about such glimpses of hell than a Fleet Street journalist or a well-read man of letters. But as Father Brown would remark in the first of the stories, a man who does next to nothing but hear men's real sins is not likely to be wholly unaware of human evil. Shortly after their walk, Chesterton and O'Connor sat with two Cambridge undergraduates who chatted with them about art and music. When the priest left the room, the young men remarked with worldly condescension on the cloistered innocence of priests. Chesterton's reaction bears repeating, and so then it quotes him and says, To me, still almost shivering with the appallingly practical facts of which the priest had warned me, this comment came with such a colossal and crushing irony that I nearly burst into a loud and harsh laugh in the drawing room. For I knew perfectly well, as regards all the solid Satanism which the priest knew and warred against with all his life, these two Cambridge gentlemen, luckily for them, knew about as much of real evil as two babies in the same perambulator. That is fantastic. It's wonderful. And so it's no wonder that Father Brown is the kind of detective that brings an understanding of the human nature and an understanding of the human heart. And so he really gets into the skin of them. And I think it's it's so breathtaking. There's one quote which says, Our general experience is that every conceivable sort of man has been a saint. And I suspect you will find too that every conceivable sort of man has been a murderer. Ooh, I like it. Yeah. Have you read many of the Father Brown stories? Uh, no, I'm just beginning they're, I'm just they're excellent. They're a lot of fun. They're a lot more whimsical and a lot kind of more tongue-in-cheek than even the Sherlock Holmes stories, which I find very readable. But I think that they're a lot of fun. They are. They're really... I mean, I've only read... Oh, gosh, I don't even know. I'm only beginning, so it's below five I've read. <laughs> but I, I first was introduced to Father Brown by the television adaptions. Which I think are great. I know they're kind of a bit divisive, but I really enjoy them. I flippin' love them. I, like, I just think they're brilliant. They transpose him from Victorian London to post... Is it World War Two? I think it's 50s, is it? 40s. 40s, yeah. yeah. So post-World War Two, But it really works, and I really think Mark Williams makes an excellent Father Brown. Oh, doesn't he just? We it's, do love our Mark Williams. It's brilliant. But I think that there's a couple of things that Chesterton is getting at when he made Father Brown such an anti-Sherlock. And first of all, there's the idea that crimes are committed by humans. He has this extended quote, which I think is so interesting and informative, where he says he's talking about how he can figure out who the criminal is in any given situation. And he says, I thought and thought about how a man might come to be like that until I realised that I really was like that in everything except actual and final consent to the action. And this is part of a, an article, so the writer then goes on to say, Then in a direct refutation of a Holmesian detection style, Father Brown explains what a scientific criminology means. They mean getting outside a man and studying him as if he were a gigantic insect in what they would call a dry, impartial light, in what I should call a dead and dehumanised light. So far from being knowledge, it's actually suppression of what we know. It's treating a friend as a stranger and pretending that something familiar is really remote and mysterious. I know I am inside a murderer, thinking his thoughts, wrestling with his passions, till I have bent myself into the posture of his hunched and peering hatred, till I really am a murderer. And the article then goes on to say, which I think is a brilliant perspective, it says, the word that best describes this style of detection is certainly empathy. Father Brown empathises with all characters and with the supposed criminal, using his knowledge of his own sin to enable him to understand what the killer must have been thinking. That's such such a Catholic way of approaching it. Yeah. The, I mean, it's sort of ingrained within Catholic belief and thought is the sort of ultimate there, but by the grace of God go I. And there's yep. the same evil is in all of us. And some people commit really horrible crimes and sin really badly all the time. <laughs> some of us don't, mm -hmm. but we all have the capacity to do it. I mean, that's a very sort of simplistic way of putting it, but yeah. it's that sort of, that idea of 
Yeah, and so from this I kind of pulled out... In some ways I'm actually not going too much into his spiritual and spiritual atmospheres thing, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I still think even just from that there's three really Catholic points that I would pull out from that. First of all, so if Holmes demonstrates that the world is knowable, I would argue that Father Brown presents a god that is knowable. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is obviously as humans we will never understand God, even like it's so beyond our comprehension to think of someone who is infinite and all good and all powerful and all knowing. But that being, that creator being, allowed himself to become incarnate Mm -hmm. in Jesus Christ. And so he became a man. And while there are always depths of the human heart that no one will ever understand and no one will ever know, and you will never, until we pass on into heaven, we will never have true communion with the people around us however to a certain extent people are knowable Mm -hmm. and so the world is created by someone who is rational but also someone who is a person who is knowable and in being able to know christ we are also able to know other people Mm -hmm. and that like father brown says it's like treating the friend as a stranger that we can actually feel that we can understand people and that there is something that allows us to empathize and put ourselves in each other's shoes and that that because someone has been through something or has done something doesn't make them completely unknowable to us just because we haven't been through it or we haven't done it no it's in some ways links into the idea of true knowledge of the self uh, enables true knowledge of other people and understanding people yeah yeah that's so true the second point of Mm -hmm. a catholic perspective that i was going to make it which is very different from holmes and i think there are definitely Holmes stories where he has a lot of sympathy for the person who commits a crime and he even it's interesting in all of the articles they were really associating holmes with the law and that the law is the final judge in his world. But there are definitely times when he puts himself in the place of a judge. There's one where a couple are allowed to run off together at the end and the woman had been married to a horrible man. And and so that he puts himself as a judge. So in some ways it's indicating that there is a moral arbiter that's higher than the law. And that while Holmes is stepping into that at the moment, but that the law isn't the end of moral judgment, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. But... Father Brown certainly takes it so much further and he certainly is mostly interested in encountering someone who has done something wrong and trying to bring them to repentance. And he's not that concerned about the law. No, he's concerned about the people and their souls. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so one of the most important characters in the Father Brown series is the great thief Flambeau, who Mm -hmm. is the thief from the first story that I was talking about where he disguised as a priest. And he figures in a lot of the stories and he actually comes back and becomes a private detective and he moves away from his world of crime. And there's a scene where he's justifying his position and saying what happened to him. And he says... I stole for 20 years with these two hands and fled from the police on these two feet. I hope you will admit that my activities were practical. Have I not been asked how it was possible for anyone to fall so low, told that no decent person could ever have dreamed of such depravity? Do you think all that did anything but make me laugh? Only my friend told me he knew exactly why I stole. I have never stolen since. In that quote, what he's kind of getting at is that the friend that he's referring to is Father Brown. And all Father Brown does is encounter him with the truth of his own personality and the truth of why he does it and his own interior and emotional reasons for becoming that man. And in doing so, it reformed him. And in that way, Father Brown is more than just a detective. Mm -hmm. He is a priest, like he solves these mysteries as part of his priestly duties, in a way. It's a hugely powerful way of not only solving a crime, but actually approaching a human. Yeah. Like, a human being. Yeah, that it's about the people who are doing it. And I think it really plays into Chesterton's approach. And one of the things that he was really known for at the time, because sadly, at that time, there was a real prevalent idea, which was to say, you're poor because 
you are what they would consider genetically predisposed to being poor or you're a certain class because you were made that way or you're a thief because you were made that way and Chesterton really really disagreed and in the same way he spoke out a lot against eugenics you can't just make someone good by producing them in a lab that we have to be able to see the redeemable qualities in all human beings and so that is a really obvious example of where he's saying that this was the biggest criminal in the world and that he is now reformed and reformable Mm -hmm. and I think it goes back to what he was saying that every kind of person has been a saint and every kind of person has been a murderer I think he would all sometimes both that's what I was going to (laughs) say but I think he would take it one step further and say that every kind of person can have been both a murderer and a saint and it's really kind of funny because I read the Magnificat every day and they have a saint a little biography of a saint at the end of each day and for each Magnificat for so for each month they do a different theme so I think the last one was about worldly vocations in terms of your job so saints with careers essentially mm-hmm. and that was one of them but this month's one is saints who made mistakes and their bio always says what wow. the mistake was that's a good lot of them <laughs> right and it's a real testament to how the catholic church has that ability to take people who have had bad experiences and have done terrible things and make them into saints i'm sorry for putting you on the spot but who was the two saints that we were talking about uh, yesterday and one had actually murdered the other. Oh, that was Fausta and Evelasius, which... Evelasius, <laughs> what a name. <laughs> I feel like someone <laughs> retrospectively put that name on him. I mean, or unless it was parents who really had a baby and were like, this baby's going to do something evil. <laughs> we're going to have to call him Evelasius. Yeah, but I've talked about that with my friends. I've wondered, other than that example, how many saints are there who have been made saints through the process of killing another saint? Mm. Because there's more than one. There's actually quite a few. There are. You, you hear about them sort of just, you know, yeah. sprinkled all over the place. Yeah. And so actually that ties into my final Catholic point about Chesterton, which really sets up every single detective story, which is that none of this makes sense unless there's an actual moral code. Mm-hmm. As much as you might want to say it's the law or civil duty or any of those things none of it makes sense if there isn't a moral code so father brown like we said is trying to pull people away from sin and into holiness Mm -hmm. but that only works if there is actually a moral code to live by if you just keep asking why (laughs) yeah and so i've got one last chesterton quote which i think is kind of perfect and i think it'll be a good springboard because surely every murder mystery story is on some level about Someone has been killed and that is a bad thing and we need to rectify or bring justice to that. (laughs) So here's the quote. There is, however, another good work that is done by detective stories. While it is the constant tendency of the old Adam to rebel against so universal and automatic a thing as civilization, to preach departure and rebellion, the romance of police activity keeps in some sense before the mind the fact that civilization itself is the most sensational of departures and the most romantic of rebellions. By dealing with the unsleeping sentinels who guard the outposts of society, it tends to remind us that we live in an armed camp, making war with a chaotic world, and that the criminals, the children of chaos, are nothing but the traitors within our gates. When the detective in a police romance stands alone and somewhat fatuously fearless amid the knives and fists of a thieves' kitchen, it does certainly serve to make us remember that it is the agent of social justice who is the original and poetic figure, while the burglars and footpads are merely placid old cosmic conservatives, happy in the immemorial respectability of apes and wolves. The romance of the police force is thus the whole romance of man. It is based on the fact that morality is the most dark and daring of conspiracies. It reminds us that the whole noiseless and unnoticeable police management by which we are ruled and protected is only a successful night errantry. Can you just listen to him like, all day? I know. <laughs> <laughs> just a uh, constant stream of Chesterton. That's exactly what we need. It's what everybody needs. <laughs> So I think that's going to bring us really nicely into our next person, which is the always wonderful Agatha Christie. Of course. I mean, how could you not have Agatha Christie in detective fiction podcast? It'd be traumatic. <laughs> yeah, so Agatha Christie. I really, I just love Agatha Christie. So, 
which is handy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to talk first about Poirot. Excellent. And then Miss Marple. And a bit about uh, Agatha Christie herself mm-hmm. as well. So, Poirot, of course, uh, is a, a Catholic chap. He which, is indeed. Which, which is good. <laughs> um, we like this. His Catholicism is present within the books. It's not always sort of in your face or completely overt. Mm-hmm. Um, some people miss it altogether. I know. I was reading about this and I haven't seen enough of the David Suchet series to be confident of this fact so myself. I have. <laughs> you have. But they said that they actually brought it way more to the fore in the series than it is in the books. They did. And it was actually quite important to David Suchet mm. himself. I'll talk a bit about that actually in a second. So um, there's certain things in the books. There's occasionally Poirot will say something the lines of, I'm a good Catholic. Mm-hmm. So blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but there's also some sort of just sneaky descriptions in there. He also says mon dieu quite a lot. He does. <laughs> he's, he's known for it, in fact. There's one point which is rather strange for Agatha Christie, who was uh, really far more Anglican yeah. than she was Catholic. But there's a sort of juxtaposition of a small, modest Catholic Church, Church of the Assumption, on one side of the street, contrasted with the aggressive Protestant Church of St. Mary's opposite. <laughs> and I was like, oh, hello. And then there's a description of Poirot going in, genuflecting, and then eventually being disrupted from his prayers yeah. by the start of a mystery. <laughs> but in some, uh, in some of the books, his Catholicism actually leads to, helps him with solving the crime. Mm. And there's actually a parallel with what you said about Father Brown. Excellent. Yes. How wonderful. It's like we planned it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But in Murder in Mesopotamia, which is a a good one. I do um, know this story. This is very good. Oh, wonderful. There's a chap called Father Lavigny, and he's uh, an archaeologist slash monk. And uh, the story goes on a bit, but there's this particular quote, and there's possibly a spoiler, so... You know, skip ahead a little bit if you don't want to hear this. Use that plus 30 seconds button. Yeah, it's handy. Poirot says, I am a practising Catholic and I know many priests and members of religious communities. Father Lavigny struck me as not ringing quite true to this role. And he doesn't. There you go. (laughs) There you go. His Catholicism actually helps him solve the mystery in that way. There's a similar thing in an appointment with death. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't want to. I don't want to leapfrog you a little bit too much, but I think it's telling that the stories that the Catholicism comes out in are the ones to do with archaeology, because when she remarried, she married a Catholic archaeologist. Yes. So in some ways, it's very fitting that the stories that are really centered on the archaeology world mm-hmm. are also the ones that bring out the Catholicism the most. Yes, they do. Which is. It's quite interesting. In my head, I sometimes mix up aspects of murder in Mesopotamia with appointment with death. So uh, I think I've checked. <laughs> I think what I'm saying about each one is correct. But here we go. So, yeah, I watched this documentary and it was sort of following David Suchet in his acting abilities in relation to Poirot. So his methods, how he does it. And it was really, really interesting. And I'm not sure I've ever known of an actor more dedicated to portraying yeah. a person. He's, it sort of takes him up, he becomes overwhelmed by it. They are so cute, actually. They have his wife on set for Aww. particularly emotional scenes within Poirot, so he'll act out the scene, and then his wife will be there to sort of comfort him and calm him down afterwards, you know, bring him a cup of tea, give him a cuddle, because he gets really emotionally invested if Poirot's upset, David Suchet's upset. <laughs> but what was really important for David Suchet, particularly the later episodes that he did of Poirot was bringing out more aspects overtly of Poirot's Catholicism because it was for David Suchet who's someone who really lived Poirot it was his main career was doing Poirot yeah it was really important to him that people understood the reason behind why Poirot dedicated his life to this and why certain things were so important to him like respecting the dead body mm. or respecting everybody really he's he's never he sometimes really tells people off, but he's never rude. He's respectful to everybody. Yeah. And it was really important to David Suchet that that sort of raison d'etre, French, <laughs> <laughs> that was clever, for Poirot, um, 
was well, was portrayed. I, over don't call him French. Oh no, he speaks French. He's, yeah. Bel- he's, he's <laughs> Belgian, <laughs> madame. <laughs> I love the guy. Oh dear. Yeah, there's several episodes where rosary beads appear in, in conspicuously. The television yeah. Some episodes he's sort of forced to his knees in prayer. There's a bit in David Suchet's uh, Murder on the Orient Express where he's praying with his rosary beads and he says the phrase, I thank you, is in French, but it's, I thank you, God, that you have made me a Catholic. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, that's going in the podcast. That one's good. It's going in the podcast. It's going in my daily prayers. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And then at Poirot's death scene, his faith's very prominent. Mm. And it's very moving, actually. That bit. Yeah, it's beautiful. It is. It is. So, appointment with death is the sort of the story I picked out as being potentially the most overtly religious mm-hmm. um, story with Poirot in it. So, well, <laughs> I haven't read the book relating to appointment with death. I've seen the mm-hmm. the adaptation with David Suchet, so I understand that the book differs, or rather the television adaption differs greatly from the book in several ways, but I don't know what they are because I haven't read the, <laughs> the book, but there you go. The, the premise is that it's an archaeological dig to locate the head of John the Baptist, so we're quite firmly in Catholic territory before we definitely, start. Definitely. And there's, again, rosary beads praying, etc. through the whole thing, and it, there's, it's quite pertinent that religious implications of this being part of this dig and being around it for Poirot. It comes through quite overtly. But there's a young lady in the story who, it transpires, has a pretty dreadful time of it, as, you know, someone usually does in these things. But uh, There's always one poor sod. <laughs> there's actually several in appointment with death. But she, she comes out quite rough at the end. She's very drawn to Poirot. And there's a really powerful scene right at the end of the, the television episode. And Poirot says to her, you'll permit an old man to pontificate? And she sort of nods. And he says, law, mademoiselle, there is nothing in the world too damaged that it cannot be repaired by the hand of Almighty God. I encourage you to know this, because without this certainty, we should all of us be mad. And at that point, he gives her this beautiful a set of rosary beads and she sort of clings to them and it's a really it's a beautifully shot moment yeah it's really lovely and it's incredibly powerful and it being at the end of the episode it, it really stayed with me I, I just thought that was a really wonderful I think it, it's example it's very telling how Christy really understood the gift that the Catholic faith can be to people Mm -hmm. we talked in the episode on catholic weirdness with matthias about how christy was one of the signatories of a actually kind of the main signatory of a petition when the pope moved the mass away from latin and the tridentine mass and Mm -hmm. so she was part of this petition of non-catholics who were requesting that the pope allow that the tridentine mass continue in england because they argued that it was a profound cultural gift and a gift to the world that had inspired countless pieces of art and music and literature and that it was everyone's and it was important for everyone to be able to access this and I think in a similar way you could almost see the rosary like that that Christy sees it as a gift for anyone to bring them through a particularly tough time. Mm -hmm. That's it's a good parallel I like it. So as you said um, Agatha Christie's second husband was a Catholic Yes. Uh, so Max Malawan, I think. Malawan? Malawan? Let's go with Malawan. <laughs> we'll go with that. And her mother dabbled in quite a lot of things, but Catholicism was one of them. Other things included the occult and stuff, which yeah. you do see a lot in Agatha Christie. So there you go. Lots of uh, influence there. I believe it was from her mother that she ended up with this habit or this devotion to having read The Imitation of Christ. By Thomas Akempis? Yes. Yeah which also, I believe, features heavily in the spirituality of Miss Marple. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I didn't know that until I started looking at things for this podcast, doing my research. Excellent. Good friend here. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought that was quite quite powerful. And then the link, of course, to Miss Marple, who herself has a, a good few Catholic priests among her friends, which are sort of dotted 
here and there. She gets letters from these people. Excellent. And um, one of them is uh, the ill-fated Father Gorman, who, <laughs> in uh, a really wonderful uh, Miss Marple story called The Pale Horse, uh, the poor chap's murdered at the start. <laughs> the death of a Catholic priest at the start leads to, if not explicitly Catholic, definitely sort of orthodox Christian views on sin and evil. So The Pale Horse is fantastic, and I particularly like the Julia McKenzie adaption of it, which is rare. I'm usually Geraldine McEwen all the way, but I like the <laughs> Julia McKenzie version of The Pale Horse. And Miss Marple, she doesn't muck about, really. If she hears someone saying something that she believes is profoundly wrong, even if it's in like you know a polite conversation over tea, which I believe that this section I'm going to quote to you is... She just hands down like, no, that's not true. We need to recognise the truth here. And <laughs> that's a that's bit, just is wonderful. <laughs> that, that's a bit Flannery O'Connor. It is, yeah, it is a bit Flannery. <laughs> Similar bluntness. Who yeah. knew there was a parallel? But there is. Oh. This is in response to a, a vicar's wife who is describing how she was brought up believing in the devil. Mm-hmm. And he was sort of, you know, this sort of goat figure in little trousers or something. And to her, he just seems so silly. And she couldn't understand why people got so het up about him. And, you know, Miss Marple just sort of sips a cup of tea, puts it down. (laughs) And she goes, evil is powerful, sometimes more powerful than good. It needs to be recognised and fought. Otherwise, we go down to darkness. Wow, that's really intense that's amazing well it killed the conversation (laughs) well it probably would wouldn't it (laughs) it really shook up a lady who was also in that conversation and Mm -hmm. it really made a difference to her as a person and she you know she comes and she asks miss marple later like it's what you were saying about how we must fight evil or we all go down to darkness and it has a big bearing on the plot and how things are revealed yeah like you said that really ties in with the chesterton quote yes it does it does indeed (laughs) Which is not surprising, because I should have said, a lot of the people, when we say the golden age of the detective fiction, one of the really exciting things is that there was a club of these authors called the Detection Club, where they all shared stories and socialised together and wrote novels together, like a round robin where they all took a chapter each. And these included Chesterton, Agatha Christie, mm-hmm. Dorothy L. Sayers, who we're just about to get to, and yeah. Ronald Knox, who I'm going to mention later. Is this the same club that had the skull that you had to like swear an oath on to be part of? Is that right. still going? I'll look it up. Okay, I don't know, actually. <laughs> it's great fun. <laughs> as long as when you swear, you just say memento mori, I'm down. <laughs> <laughs> we should check. <laughs> we should check. But that Miss Marple sort of bomb in the conversation of you must fight evil or everything goes mm-hmm. to darkness. Reminding me a lot of the comments, uh, the many comments that C.S. Lewis makes with regard to the devil and mm-hmm. evil and how it's real and must be recognised. Do you want to hear the thing that it most reminds me of with Lewis? Because I've just been to a book club about mere Christianity and we were com- and we were commenting on how blunt he is when he's commenting on the people who say, oh, if heaven is just sitting around on clouds strumming harps, it sounds so boring that I wouldn't want to be there. And he replies saying, you should tell them that if they can't read books for adults, they shouldn't talk about them. (laughs) He's another one that's a little bad, isn't he? (laughs) Which feels like the same kind of conversation Mm. killer as that was. It probably is. Gosh, don't you just love a conversation killer? (laughs) Oh, goodness me. Should we shift to, to good old well, Dorothy have Well, I have one quote about Christy, which, and then Ooh, we'll, we'll definitely do. shift please gear, because I believe your loving husband has almost got dinner ready, oh, so we better keep moving. But mm-hmm. I will say there was an excellent article on First Things, which was The Christian World of Agatha Christie, and it makes a, an interesting point, which kind of ties into some of the Chesterton things that we were saying, which said, from a theological perspective, the detective genre is inclined towards a Catholic interpretation in contrast to the more Protestant thriller. The former deals with the community, the latter the individual protagonist. The community has been shattered in the whodunit, usually by the primal sin of murder, and the overriding question is one of innocence and guilt. 
Where the leftish non-religious commentators stumble is their belief that the genre seeks to restore innocence lost, that with the identification of the culprit she can be expelled, punished and innocent returned to Eden. The radical flaw at the heart of this interpretation is the failure to see that the whodunit is premised on the doctrine of original sin. Everybody is guilty of something. It may offer hope that the problem has a solution, but evil will not be expunged as a result. It is one problem with one solution. It is a small victory in a much larger and indeed an eternal war. The detective novel is the world's most Augustinian genre and not, in consequence, especially reassuring. Ooh. <laughs> so, so far we've had Jesuit, we've had Thomistic, and mm-hmm. now we've had Augustinian. We're doing well. Yeah, we're hitting the big ones. <laughs> but yes, let's get on to Dorothy L. Sayers, who I don't actually know a lot about. I'm afraid she wasn't a secret Benedictine or anything. No, <laughs> what a shame. <laughs> what a shame. So, Dorothy L. Sayers, who I also love, she's most famous for her books on Lord Peter Whimsey, yeah. who's the detective in her novels, and... What a joy he is. Highly recommend. <laughs> Love him. She was the daughter of a Church of England vicar and was sort of staunchly Anglican, staunchly Orthodox Christian. Yes. With a smaller, obviously, throughout her life. And she was good friends with C.S. Lewis mm-hmm. and T.S. Eliot. Which is great because I want to make a T.S. Eliot point later. Yay! <laughs> and Charles Williams, who was a member of the Inklings with oh, amazing. Lewis and yeah. Tolkien. And um, she was also greatly influenced by Chesterton. So we've got another link. There you go. Also, I don't know whether you're going to touch on this, but she moved away from detective fiction in order to focus on, first of all, writing a series of plays about the life of Christ and then translating Dante's Divine Comedy. She did. Yeah. She did. So she's very much part of this, not just Orthodox Christian and Mm -hmm. Christian, as you were saying, but even from the Dante point of view, quite a Catholic view of the faith. Yes. There's a lot of overlap between the views that she expressed in that kind of writing and those that C.S. Lewis yes. has expressed in a focus on staying away from fads mm-hmm. and anything wishy-washy, Christianity yes. with water, there as Lewis go. would have it. So she's what you probably call an Anglo-Catholic. Yes, kind a of. lot like T.S. Eliot. Though. Yes. You can see the group. Yes. You can see the group. But she was very big on dogma. She actually wrote a book entitled, so she's another one who doesn't take any nonsense if you listen to the book title, Creed or Chaos, Why Christians Must Choose Either Dogma or Disaster, (laughs) with the alternative title, Why It Really Does Matter What You Believe. You can tell she also was a marketing writer and she used to write the advertising slogans and I, obviously I'm from Dublin, and she was the one who came up with the Toucan Guinness image Mm -hmm. and so yeah you can really she's very catchy and she has that ability to concisely put ideas into your mind so what a woman so i believe you're gonna quote i am i won't linger too long on dorothy i'll say is because poor adam's cooking dinner yes (laughs) but um i thought i couldn't stop talking about her without bringing in something from her fiction and her detective fiction given the podcast which is um i'm just going to quote a bit from gordy knight which is Debatably, but not that debatably, the best okay. of the, the Peter Whimsey novels. And it comments on her belief in Orthodox Christianity and dogma. It's quite whimsical. Yes, the Dean was right. Here was the great Anglican compromise at its most soothing and ceremonial. The solemn procession of doctors in hood and habit, the vice-chancellor bowing to the preacher, and the bedels tripping before them, the throng of black gowns and the decorous gaiety of the summer-frocked wives of dons, the hymn and the bidding prayer, the gowned and hooded preacher austere in cassock and bands, the quiet discourse delivered in a thin, clear, scholarly voice and dealing gently with the relations of the Christian philosophy to atomic physics. Here were the universities and the Church of England kissing one another in righteousness and peace, like the angels in a Botticelli nativity, very exquisitely robed, very cheerful in a serious kind of way, a little mannered, a little conscious of their fine mutual courtesy. Here, without heat, they could discuss their common problem, agreeing pleasantly or pleasantly agreeing to differ. (laughs) 
of the grotesque and ugly devil shapes sprawling at the foot of the picture, these angels had no word to say. What solution could either of them produce if challenged for the Shrewsbury problem? Other bodies would be bolder. The Church of Rome would have its answer, smooth, competent and experienced. The queer, bitterly jarring sects of the new psychology would have another ugly, awkward tentative and applied with a passionate experimentalism. It was entertaining to imagine a Freudian university indissolubly wedded to a Roman establishment. They certainly would not live so harmoniously together as the Anglican Church and the School of Literae Humaniores. But it was delightful to believe, if only for an hour, that all human difficulties could be dealt with in this detached and amiable spirit. The university is a paradise, true, but then saw I that there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven. Oh, wonderful. That's really great. What a woman. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. And so I think we've pretty much hit the kind of main ones that we wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. I want to do just maybe a little kind of checklist of a few extra names at the bottom here. Right. But the first big one is Ronald Knox. And the reason why I haven't talked about him more is, first of all, I have to admit that I haven't read as much of him as I would like. Mm -hmm. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> But he also doesn't necessarily vary from the pattern too much. And so he's quite similar in, I'm going to say particularly Chesterton, but he's so worth reading. I can't believe I'm so excited now that I've got this kind of new clutch of detective novels that are brilliant. So Ronald Knox was an Anglican and then he became a Catholic and he was a Catholic priest, most famous for writing several famous theology books. There's one called The Belief of Catholics, which is essentially mere Christianity for Catholics. Ooh. It was interesting, him and Chesterton kind of leapfrogged each other. He inspired Chesterton and then Chesterton inspired him to become a Catholic and then Chesterton became a Catholic with the help of Knox. So they were sort of batting between each other, which was really interesting. <laughs> but along with being an incredible thinker and, and writer, he actually needed to earn some money. <laughs> and so he started writing yeah, detective fiction. <laughs> <laughs> but actually before that a bit like Chesterton he was an avid reader and he was one of the first I think the earliest scholar as you might put it of Sherlock Holmes studies and he wrote it's in a collection called Essays and Satire and he wrote this very funny essay about the Sherlock Holmes series and how you can reconcile the discrepancies between the descriptions of Watson and things like that and it's very funny and it's really really good And but like I said then he went on to write a series of detective stories and if you enjoyed the Chesterton style of writing, I'd really recommend them. They're very tongue-in-cheek. They're very, what we would say, meta now. They keep referencing Sherlock Holmes in them. So they all sit around <laughs> and, and talk about Sherlock Holmes. And they're very light-hearted and funny and clever. And I think the thing that I've noticed that he does is he makes not only his criminals, but also his investigators quite human. So in his first book, The Viaduct Murders, there's just a group of people who are trying to figure out a, a murder that's happened in their community and they get it wrong like three times <laughs> and they muck things up for the police because Aww. they keep interfering and they're wrong and it's really really funny and it's really clever because actually if you look at his description of Holmes in the essay called Studies in Sherlock Holmes he says that the fault with the stories is that all clients are model clients they state their case in flawless journalese all criminals are model criminals they do the the cleverest thing a criminal could possibly do in the given circumstances. By a sort of Socratic paradox, we might say that the best detective can only catch the best thief. A single blunder on the part of the guilty man would have thrown all of Holmes's deductions out of joint. Which I think that kind of brings in some of the Chesterton point of view of like understanding mm. people and understanding their failings and weaknesses and things like that. So I think that's really fun. So I'd really recommend Ronald Knox. They're just a joy. I think they're great and they're really underappreciated. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to start because I've never actually read them. So I'm inspired. Yeah, I think they're great. And then the other thing that I just wanted to mention briefly is actually Graham Greene. So Graham Greene wrote, we mentioned earlier that idea that maybe 
whodunits are Catholic because they involve a community and thrillers are Protestant because they involve an individual. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting then that the stories of Graham Greene are often classified. He, he wrote a big range, but many of them are classified as thrillers. Mm-hmm. But specifically, I think the one that leaps to mind most prominently that's edging in the in the kind of just the margins of the genre is Brighton Rock and how it looks at there's a character in it who's trying to solve a crime and it's interesting that she's the really not religious one and the people who are really grappling with the fact that they're involved in this crime are the two Catholics and there's a huge meditation on when can you repent for something and when is repentance possible and the idea that if you repent at the last moment but you haven't been in the habit of repenting will you do it Mm. and it is a really fascinating study of that although I will say I did find it quite bleak but also so well written it really reminds me of Evelyn Waugh who I'm just going to name check in a second but I thought one quote was particularly relevant which is that actually George Orwell was disparaging his writing but I think it's interesting what he thinks is a problem with it. So he says, the idea floating around since Baudelaire is that there is something rather distinguished in being damned. Hell is a sort of high-class nightclub, an entry to which is reserved for Catholics only, since the others, the non-Catholics, are too ignorant to be held guilty. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's actually a really interesting perspective to put on the idea of detective stories that because of the level of guilt and culpability and Mm. understanding of damnation that that puts on committing crimes yes but then my final two which are just kind of name checks and how the genre of detective fiction has informed other writers and has informed other genres i'm just going to pull out a quote from evelyn war from one of the greatest novels of all time which is of course brideshead revisited of course and War honours Father Brown in one of the most pivotal moments in the novel where they're talking about a conversion to Catholicism and he says it's being like Father Brown's declaration I caught the thief with an unseen hook and an invisible line which is long enough to let him wander to the ends of the world and still bring him back with a twitch upon the thread. It's amazing. That line really stuck with me. Yeah and that that's a very Father Brown thing that in the same way with the church, that the church gives you the free will to make all of these mistakes and do all of these sins, but has the grace to pull you back in. Just a single twitch on the thread. Exactly. And then my final point, which I said, which is on T.S. Eliot. And so T.S. Eliot is a lot like Chesterton and even Knox being someone who is very well esteemed and even more so in the sense that his poetry is perceived as so dense and difficult to get through and like high aesthetic and not Mm. accessible. And I know people who admired him were really frustrated that he was this incredible fan of detective fiction and wrote endless reviews of detective fiction in the Criterion, which he was the editor of. And I just kind of love that aspect of his personality and it comes into his his writing so much. But it became more pronounced the more he entered into religion. So it was interesting that he's writing about, especially in some things like The Wasteland, which is the sort of dissolution of civilization and the dissolution of ideals and the dissolution of coherency in the world, which was a kind of post-war perspective. And that, to him, faith restored that order and that, in the same way, detective fiction restored that order. And when I was reading about the golden age of detective fiction, they were actually making that point that people who had come back from the war wanted something that was distracting and entertaining, but also was putting things in order and had a correct order to them. So I think that was a telling point that with all of his modernism and with all of his avant-gardeness that Mm -hmm. both of these aspects allowed him to make sense of the world and that uh, in a June 1927 letter to his friend Virginia Woolf, he described himself only half-jokingly as a person who specialises in detective stories and ecclesiastical history. Um, which I really love. And the reason specifically why I wanted to bring this up is, first of all, because I love T.S. Eliot, and I'm sure I'll be doing a T.S. Eliot podcast as soon as I can find someone who wants to do one with me. (laughs) 
but that the name of this podcast, Risking Enchantment, comes from a quote from East Coker, which is part of the Four Quartets, which is among his later writing and also some of his most religious writing. But it comes from a larger sentence, which at least part of is, On the edge of a grimpin, where is no secure foothold, and menaced by monsters, fancy lights, risking enchantment which is where I got the name for this podcast but I think a lot of people who will hear that quote will say what's a grimpen <laughs> what is a grimpen <laughs> well it doesn't mean anything it's from the Hound of the Baskervilles the grimpen mire Ooh. so he's using it as a word to say like a mire or a fen so I just thought that that was a nice little risking enchantment tidbit there nice bit, bit of trivia <laughs> we love a bit of trivia and now we're going to round this up as quickly as possible before our dinner is cold and we have to go to Stations of the Cross because it's currently Lent I think this is going to come out in the Easter season but we're still battling through Lent yeah. but we're just going to say what we're enjoying at the moment so Chloe do you want to go first? I will I have been re-watching Downton Abbey Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a renewed admiration and love for the cook, Mrs. Patmore, because people come to her sometimes, particularly Mrs. Hughes, who's the housekeeper, comes to her and when they're upset. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, but no, 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 it's all right. No, you don't need to, you don't need to look after me. Maybe I'm just being silly. And then Mrs. Patmore just goes, yeah, maybe you are. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute savage. <laughs> She's a great character. She's fantastic. I, I, I really it. appreciate her. And the thing that I'm enjoying at the moment is whenever I come to Carlisle, we visit an incredible bookshop. So if you're within like a 50 mile radius of Carlisle, I would recommend coming all the way to the bookcase in Carlisle, uh, which is just, it used to be a bank and it's just endless floors of books. And there's, there's, the reason I know it's a bank is because there's still safes. With books in them. With books in them. (laughs) It's ridiculous. It's beyond real. But I was wondering the mythology section (laughs) And I found the compendium of GK's Weekly, which was his newsletter and his sort of magazine. And so I have purchased for communal use with the collars this edition. It's huge. I don't know why it was in the mythology section. I mean, the man is a myth, but there we go. Yeah, we, we couldn't work out. But I didn't even know it existed. So it's it's called the GK's Weekly A Sampler. And I'm very happy that I came across it. So that's what I'm enjoying. We, we were rather overjoyed. It's excellent. As well as perplexed that it was in mythology. Yeah, well, you just have to take these little graces as they come. The, the guy in the bookshop was equally perplexed as to why it was there. But, you know, so it wasn't just we us. We found it anyway. Precisely. <laughs> And with that, we're going to sign off. Thank Mm -hmm. you so much for listening. And as usual, a lot of the information is in the outro where I tell you where to like things. But I realised that I hadn't actually said, because I hadn't set it up at the time, that the podcast also has a Instagram for the podcast, which is just called Risking Enchantment Podcast. So if you want to follow us on there, please do. Uh, I really enjoy putting together posts for that. It's beautiful. Thank you. It's a beautiful Instagram. And as usual, if you can rate or subscribe or share or write a review all of those things help us so much and we really really appreciate them so thank you so much for listening and goodbye Bye. this has been risking enchantment music by kevin mcleod you can follow me on instagram and twitter with the handle at seeking watson And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.